Jared McHugh here, and this is Becoming Human. In this episode, I interview my Zen teacher, Roshi Mitra Bishop. So Roshi teaches Zen at the Mountain Gate Zen Center in northern New Mexico, where I've been spending the past few months doing a lot of meditation. And it's profound. It's definitely very, very, very profound. If, you're, if you haven't come in contact with uh, any Zen teaching, I definitely recommend it. And a good place to start would be Roshi Mitra Bishop's book that she just came out with, Deepening Zen, The Long Maturation. If you search that in Amazon, you can find it. Uh, you can also get it from the publisher, Sumeru Press. And I'll leave the links for that in the show notes. All right, here's the interview. Welcome to the podcast. This is called Becoming Human. It's where I talk about mostly using art as a tool for self-discovery, but just sort of self-realization in general and doing that through through literature, through books, through art, all of these different modalities meditation comes up to, of course. Um, but so do you want to just kind of introduce the, the book that you just came out with? Yeah. <clears throat> uh, I give you a little background information first. Yeah. And that is that I came to Zen practice, Zen Buddhist practice, meditation practice, um, unwillingly. Uh, my life happened to crash in shards around my feet, and I had no choice but to look elsewhere than where ordinary things are are assumed to be making people happy. I basically lost everything that really mattered to me, including my self-image as somebody who was accomplished and able to do a lot of things and so on. It was a wretched time. So I turned to Zen practice because that was the only refuge I could find. It seemed like there was nothing outside of myself that was ever going to give me lasting happiness and peace. And therefore, the only alternative is to go inside. And going inside was to open Pandora's box of trauma, of all kinds of challenging things. But having recognized that that was the only way that even if I tried to commit suicide, it wouldn't solve any problems at all and would probably just exacerbate the situation. Not only that, but cause pain to people I cared about. So I bit the bullet and started connecting with the Rochester Zen Center. And it took a long time, but eventually things changed. I began to feel more peace, more ease, uh, more relaxation in, in, in other environments, and it was quite remarkable. I hadn't realized how caught I was and how limited I was in just being. So you could say that I was becoming human as part of this practice, and now I've done 50 years of it, um, hardcore, many, many, uh, Sashin, which are our meditation retreats in the Zen community. And as a result, I have been teaching myself for many years and have uh, decided to, the timing just felt right and everything came together to make it happen, to write a book. And with uh, Jared and a few other folks who came forth and were ready to offer their gifts um, each of which was unique, and put together um, these books. We're now on book two, and the the uh, title is Deepening Zen: The Long Maturation. And the reason for this 
the long maturation and its connection to deepening Zen is because you can do meditation and reach a nice comfortable place and have some ease in your life and that's enough for a lot of people but for anyone who's experienced trauma or have had very difficult situations in their life sometimes just from the beginning it is important to go deeper because it is in going deeper that you can reach true freedom from whatever you're caught in. And not only that, true freedom regardless of circumstances. You can be in a situation that ordinarily would be uh, extreme for you. And you'd be uh, maybe all tight in knots and maybe even shut down in dissociation trying to deal with the situation because there would be so much tension and anxiety around it. But with deep enough Zen practice, particularly when you have gone through the long maturation, and, and I say gone through the long maturation as if it's got an end. As far as I know, it doesn't have an end. It continues, uh, you continue reaching places that you hadn't even realized where you were caught, and the tools are there to uncaught you. And as I said, gradually over time, your life becomes very, very different. And in part of that, what happens is unwittingly, we draw to ourselves people who will interact with us in ways that reinforce our self-image, our assumptions about ourselves. And as those assumptions change, because we're, we're getting more insight into them and beginning to see that they're just an idea and have no basis in reality, really. They're just conclusions that we drew as we were growing up based on how we were treated. Then when we begin to see how those are just ideas, just stories, and have no basis in real fact, then we become free of them. And as a result, our behavior changes, our interactions with people change, become, generally speaking, more compassionate and open and, and generous. And as that happens, we inevitably attract people who respond to that in positive ways and no longer attract the people who would have responded to uh, a different person that we were. It's not that we change, it's that we let go of the uh, sort of the protective covering that we think we have and actually it's not protective at all but it feels like it and we become more free to simply respond to circumstances instead of uh, standing back and reacting to them it's a very different way of life so in these talks that I've given during the retreats that we offer at Mountain Gate uh, I speak to how this can take place and how to do it you can do it if you're willing to do what it takes. If you're motivated enough, committed enough, you'll be able to transform your life. No doubt about it. I've seen it happen many, many times over. And so it seemed like a good idea, since I'm getting older, that I would like to pass these things on because it seems to be a, a rather unique way of teaching Zen in America in the world for that matter. Uh, and so 
uh, book one was written. It's available on Amazon.com and you can also get it directly from the publisher, Sumero Press. And we're now working, as I said, on book two and Jared is a tremendous help in this. We're already finished with the first chapter and now we're working on the second chapter of 16 or 17. So over to you, Jared. Great, yeah. Out of um, like eight different questions came up as you were talking, but I'll just, <laughs> I'll just pick the first one. So you mentioned that you were introduced to Zen kind of out of uh, necessity. Yes. And I, I feel similarly in my life. I feel like Zen, I came to Zen through uh, what felt like a space of necessity that I really just had to uh, start figuring something out in a, in a deeper, deeper, personal and intimate way. Um, or else I was just going to, I didn't know what to do otherwise, you know, other than start to go deep and figure some stuff out. Is that a place that, that most people, maybe most of you students come through, come to Zen from, from this place of necessity? Or is it just kind of a, do some people get into it out of like a, a hobby or something, or they just want to like try out meditation or something like that? Um, there are those people, but they don't stick. Mm. Uh, if you're if you're just kind of curious about Zen practice and don't have any motivation to do it to change your life in any way, uh, then you'll just try it out and it might be interesting. You might um, do it for a while. It'll feel pretty good eventually, and then you just kind of drift away because it's done what work you wanted it to do. But for anyone who has had a challenging life, particularly. Uh, one that's experienced trauma, and trauma is being discovered to be much more uh, common than it ever used to be. There were ways of, of being with kids in particular uh, that in our society in the past uh, centuries and even past years were, it turned out to be pretty brutal and abusive but they were commonly accepted. So a lot of research has been done into this, mainly through the uh, efforts of uh, a, a Dutch man, Bessel van der Kolk, who's a psychiatrist in America, and is the first person <clears throat> to really nail trauma as something that seriously impacts people's lives. And over the years, a lot of research has been done and uh, one of the major things affecting trauma, which is not something that's ordinarily considered, at least not in the past, is early childhood experiences and not only how it impacts the assumptions kids have about themselves, but also it actually impacts the physical development of the brain. So at the top of this list of about seven things that can cause early childhood trauma is abandonment. And that doesn't necessarily mean that uh, your mother, after giving birth, uh, wraps you in a, in a towel and leaves you in the bathroom or of some public place or even puts you in the dump uh, or plastic bag and throws you away. Uh, that's sort of a major form of abandonment and, and there are people who survive that kind of treatment. But there's also minor forms of abandonment. Uh, when kids are uh, constantly told things about themselves that other people don't like and not warmly accepted, uh, that's abandonment. When people, uh, when, when the parents are distant, an example of this is 
uh, I was in a in a lab waiting for uh, some tests, and there was a couple there with their six-year-old son, and both parents were deeply engrossed in their cell phones. The little kid was desperately trying to connect with them and get some affirmation. And the only time that happened was actually negative because he went over to the water cooler and got himself a little drink of water and they freaked out about that. So he got negative attention. That child is gonna grow up uh, realizing that negative attention is, is what he gets when he's nasty or naughty or bad or whatever. And you get him into a teenage years and he gets a gun and the rest can be history. And that even if that doesn't happen, he's going to be a miserable adult. Then it goes down the line. I won't get into the other, other uh, things that can cause trauma, but uh, it, it, uh, being a parent is really, really important. And uh, many of us fall short. I know I did. I'm just grateful my kids have forgiven me, basically. And we're still friends. But uh, all these things have impact on people's lives and how they interact with other people and how other people interact with them. And so to become truly human, you want to work with that. Um, and the best way to work with that is with a, a, a competent, trained therapist combined with uh, a meditation practice, particularly Zen practice, which helps you go deep. And the therapists of, that I've known have all said, every single one of them, that when someone comes to therapy and they're also doing Zen meditation practice, that their therapy goes much faster than if they did not have that spiritual practice. And I would say as a Zen teacher, the same is true the other way, that for Zen students who also have had trauma and go to a, a significantly competent, and there are plenty of people out there that call themselves trauma therapists, but they aren't really very experienced and sometimes don't even know what they're doing. But if you can find one that's really effective and you're also doing Zen practice, your Zen practice will, will proceed much deeper as a result of that. So that's a long way of answering your question, but... Yeah, yeah, no, that's great. And, and one, um, one thing that was coming up and that has come up with, with me in my practice is... Um, I guess how I was thinking of trauma, because I, I think before getting into therapy and into Zen practice, I thought of trauma as like something that happens to other people, you know, and something extreme, right? It's something like, like you were saying, you know, baby's born and then just like left in the bathroom and forgotten that that's abandonment, you know? And, and I think that was this kind of self-protective notion because then it's, okay, it happens over there. I'm okay. Nothing bad has happened to me. I'm okay. Uh, so it's all wrapped up in that self-image. Um, but expanding my understanding of trauma to include, you know, more minor things too. And just realizing like, well, yeah, everything that happens has an impact on our lives and no one has a perfect life. Um, but even if it's minor, it's still up to us to, to work with that and to process it and ideally let it go at some point. Yeah. yeah. And the most seemingly minor things, um, for example... Um, I know people who lived in families that uh, were hugely abusive, 
not necessarily beating people, but verbally abusive. And um, in one case, one of my students, his mother was physically abusive and his father was verbally abusive. And, and we got a chance to experience his father, which was absolutely dreadful when uh, we hired him to do some repair work at Hidden Valley Zen Center where I was teaching at the time. And early on in his Zen practice, when it became known about these things, Don actually said, oh no, that's how they show me they love me, which is pretty upside down. Uh, both of his parents did drugs. They also ended up in federal prison for bringing him across the border from Mexico. And uh, however, he seems to have had a connection with Zen deep practice probably in a previous life and here we don't need to get into previous lives but at any rate he was inspired as a toddler because he remembers lying on his back in his crib looking up at his legs up in the air um, and that's a common thing that toddlers do they'll they'll lie on their back and put their legs in the air and wondering whose legs are these and where did I come from and he kind of asked his mom and he knew whatever her answer was, that it was not accurate, and, they, and she didn't know. So that question continued to bug him. And when he was about five, four or five, and interestingly, he used to go and sit cross-legged in, in a particular place in his yard, he, he suddenly realized he was perfect just as he was. And he was already being uh, physically and emotionally abused, but still he was able to get that deep realization. And so initially when when he came to Hidden Valley Zen Center, he was still pretty conditioned. You know, my father screams at me, uh, tells me I'm an idiot all the time, uh, that I'll never amount to no good, and that's because he loves me. That's a pretty odd thing to tell a kid if you really love him. But eventually he realized that they were honestly not being very nice. And it began to change his relationship with the group, with all of us. Initially, um, he was a blustering, um, almost bullyish guy, and he was big. He weighed over 300 pounds, actually over 350 pounds. Uh, and and so two of our members said, you know, either he has to leave or we will leave. But when, when it was explained, his background and how, uh, you know, Zen is about being compassionate. And he was able to stay. And when he died, quite a few years later of a massive heart attack because of his health, uh, his aunt said to me, because of meditation, he became the person he was meant to be. So this is rather, rather major, but there are plenty of kids who are taught that they're not good. I, I witnessed a mother walking out of a grocery store with two kids. The older one was maybe five and he was pushing the, the grocery basket and the little one, maybe three, was desperately wanting to help. And he kept, he kept wanting to help and wanting to help and wanting to help. Finally, his mother shoved a bag of potato chips at him 
And he picked it up and he was so happy. And then he stumbled and fell. And you can imagine the breathing that came on after that. It just wrenched me. I wanted to pick up that little kid and hug him. He was going to have a pretty miserable growing up. And, um, you know, another, another kid next door to us was just a little bit older than my year and a half old son. And uh, he, he had a bicycle, a tricycle that he could ride. And he, he begged his mom to bring it out so he could ride it. And she threw it at him. Um, this, is, this is abuse. And people, people don't recognize it as such. You think that, you know, being in a war zone, being bombed, uh, that kind of thing is, is a traumatic situation. But, but there's many lesser situations that are. And you can become free if you've experienced these things yourself. How do we carry ourselves in the world with, with an open, open heart and open being when there's so much uh, pain out there? I mean, you know, you talk about compassion and one thing I've been experiencing since doing three session kind of in a row is I'll go to, go to Santa Fe to hang out and um, it just feels devastating walking around and seeing homeless people or someone will come up asking for money and it's like, and I guess there's almost this, this, fear that if my heart's too open I'm going to end up trying to like bring a bunch of people back here and give them a bed for the night or something like that which then that might not be safe and all of that stuff I mean do we just feel the the level of uh of of grief that that we're feeling for another person suffering without necessarily having to to act on it yeah one of the things that's important in zen practice is not only opening to our innate compassion, and everybody has a huge amount of compassion as you're experiencing. Um, it's often covered up or transformed into anger, which is an odd thing, but anyway, it happens. Um, but not only compassion, but also wisdom. So compassion without wisdom is pity. You feel sorry mm. for somebody in a, in, in, a, in a, I'm better than you sort of mind state. But compassion with wisdom is uh, like there was a guy, a homeless guy, who was begging, and he was an educated guy, but he'd lost his job. And another, another man came along and said, I've got something for you. You can make a choice. I can either give you $100 cash right now, or I can teach you to code. And mm -hmm. The, the homeless guy said, I'll take, the, I'll take learning how to code. And with that, he created a, some kind of program that was taken on and turned out to be quite successful. And so he was able to get back real work and no longer had to beg for money, that kind of thing. Mm. And um, somewhere there's a vague uh, saying about, um, you can, you can give a person money to buy a meal, but if you teach them how to cook or teach them how to raise his food, uh, you're, you're solving the problem. Mm -hmm. Of course, you know, it's not that everybody's wanting to do that. Some people are on the streets for lots of different reasons. Uh, some of them, because it's an easier way to make a living. 
Some of them because they're mentally ill and, and have no resources to deal with that. Some of them because they've been abandoned by their families and kicked out. Some of them because they're on drugs. Lots of reasons for that. But um, I have a good friend who grew up in the projects in Chicago. His father is alcoholic and uh, somehow this guy made it. Uh, he decided he didn't want to dig ditches for a living, which was what he could do when he got out of high school. So he put himself through college and became an engineer. And he goes now, he's in his early 70s, I think. He goes into soup kitchens and, and welcomes people. And it's so genuine because he knows what it's like to live like that. He's been there mm -hmm. and he's done decades of Zen practice. So he's quite open, he's not afraid. Um, and he is just so right on with people that, that you just feel joy around him. And this is the kind of thing that can happen when people do deep Zen practice. You know, you can do superficial Zen practice, Zen light, but, and that will maybe relieve some um, little anxiety perhaps. But if you're serious and you want to do deep Zen practice and transform your life, uh, the tools are there, the teachers are there. It's said that when the student is ready, the teacher appears and there you go. Is, is American Zen or, or Zen as it's done in America um, different from Japanese Zen in the way that at least, you know, you of course focus a lot on, on trauma and therapy and the long maturation and this kind of 360 degree approach to Zen where it's not just about spiritual realization but also healing trauma. Is that something that's built into Japanese Zen as it came over to the US or is that something that's that's new and distinct and unique in, in Zen and how Americans are doing it? It's unique in American Zen. Yeah. And part of that is because of the, the cultural differences between Japan and the United States. Um, Japan is a very, very different culture. And um, they're about at the 1950s uh, United States version of, of therapy. Uh, I remember in the 1950s, psychotherapy was suspicious. You didn't want to tell your secrets, your family secrets to anybody. It was not something that you wanted to do. And, and in Japan, there are barely a handful of psychiatrists and they deal essentially with schizophrenics and bipolar folks. They don't deal with any, anything else. There is trauma that happens in Japan. Um, and my experience of the result of that is the homeless people who interestingly enough, uh, although they live in cardboard boxes in the parks, are very neatly um, dressed. They're very, they take care, their shoes are outside their boxes, <laughs> just like it would be in if they had a whole house. And it's because they didn't fit into society. And when you don't fit into society in Japan, it's, it's a pretty dreadful situation. Uh, it is in the United States too, but there's a little bit more available to help people who are who don't fit into society and like soup kitchens like halfway houses and so on unfortunately back in the 1960s 
and 70s, um, there was uh, a big move on to vacate what were really hell realms, and that was the state institutions for mentally ill. But they were originally going to set up halfway houses and treatment centers for people who were not needing to be um, in, a, in a residential setting permanently monitored. And so hundreds, thousands of these people were just put out on the streets with no resources because they didn't come up with resources after all. And those are the people that make up a certain amount of homelessness. So to empathize with the human humanness of that person, even though they're caught in their own trauma, in their own uh, psychological issues, in their own biochemistry, uh, then uh, recognize that, that they are having a hell of a time. And if there's a way to do something about this, then um, to help in that direction. And I mean, when I say a way to do something like this, it's not necessarily giving them a money. And as a matter of fact, my practice is not to give any money because there's enough people out on the streets who are panhandling to cover their cocaine addictions. But there are also people out on the streets because they're genuinely hungry. And there used to be um, people who would hang out at the um, exit to the main post office, not the main post office, but the secondary post office in Santa Fe. And one time it came out and uh, there was a woman there who was sunburnt and obviously was living outdoors all, a lot. And she was, she was hungry and she was clearly hungry. So I went down the street, bought her the, the um, healthiest and high calorie stuff I could figure out at McDonald's and brought him back and gave him to her. And she was immensely grateful. Then six months later, I ran into her again. This time she was selling newspapers. Um, and this is one of the things the local newspaper would do is hire people who were down and out and, and set them up on a street corner and they would sell newspapers. And obviously people would give them tips and, and so on. And, and she said to me, oh, I remember you, you gave me some food and look, now I've got a job. So that was really heartening. There was another kid on a street corner in Albuquerque who was clearly ill and probably had hepatitis and uh, wasn't going to be around for a while. And he was also clearly hungry. So I went down to the first fast food place and, and got him uh, a chicken dinner for which he was obviously very, very grateful and those kinds of things. But if you have a, a discerning eye, um, there was another situation when I was traveling and this young guy came up on a bicycle when I was about to go into a fast food place and my travels and he said, uh, I need $20 to, to feed my, my dog. And I'm thinking, yep. <laughs> <laughs> you could give your dog cocaine? Really? And so I said, well, I won't, I don't, I won't give you money, but I'll take you in and buy your meal. And he just took off. So it was obvious that he was not interested in food. 
Then another time in, in Santa Fe, I came across a couple of guys uh, sitting on the doorstep of what used to be a, a food, it was a, uh, been around for decades. Uh, you just went through the line and picked up your food and paid for it and went and sat and ate. Uh, it was a very big family place and so I said, uh, and they wanted money, and I said, um, no money, but I'll give you food, I'll get you food. And one of the guys came in, I said, pick out what you and your friend want. And it wasn't a ton, I mean, it was, I think, some chicken and some mashed potatoes or something. Um, and I bought it and gave it to him and went away. But there are other people that I have said nope um, to because there was a very different perception of these people. And I think, uh, I like to think that my perception was pretty clear. So the empathy is, is really important to really feel your heart almost breaking when, when you see people who are down and out, but also to have the discernment and the wisdom to recognize who's down and out because of their own inclination. For example, the, the, there was a newspaper in Santa Fe that did an article once on panhandlers. They discovered that there's a whole um, subculture of kids, teenagers, that are, um, there's some guy that's allowed them to sort of camp in, his, in, in a house he has, and they beg uh, because it's um, worth it. They can make a hundred bucks in a day, which if you go and work somewhere, you might not make that. And they, they have a free place to stay, so um, it's, you know, it's a way of life for them. But then there are other people who really need and you, you respond to those other people when you've got the wisdom to recognize them. But not to disdain people who are, for example, begging because that's an easy way to make money, but to see the, the deep humanity of the person that's buried under a mountain of conditioning and that they have not had the opportunity to deal with the conditioning or even recognize that they have conditioning to free themselves from that. And then, like I say, you do do what uh, your innate wisdom tells will make a difference if there is something that will. Yeah, and I think that's something that I'm trying to achieve with this becoming human idea. I mean, what I'm really referring to is is shedding those layers of, of conditioning and, and all that stuff and then coming in contact with something deeper and it's funny because the something deeper is literally just being being a human <coughs> being and i think seeing that like as you connect to your own humanity i think it connects us deeper to to other people's humanity absolutely yeah and that's something i, I value in buddhism a lot and actually it comes up in catholicism too where there is an emphasis on Jesus Christ's humanity, you know, and, and certainly in Buddhism where, you know, the Buddha says, I'm not a deity, I'm not something to be worshipped, I'm, I'm just a deeply realized person. That's yeah. it. You know? And I think about some stories in the Bible, you know, about the Good Samaritan, for example, mm -hmm. that there was somebody suffering alongside the road and, and all the people of his group just ignored him. But then there was uh, a Samaritan who was of a different group and a disdained group who actually 
came up and, and made a difference. Mm-hmm. That's, that's true compassion. That's, yeah. that's compassion fueled by wisdom. And you'll see it in, in lots of different religions. Mm-hmm. Actually, some, that makes me think something I'm curious about is um, in Christianity, in our country, you see a lot of like cognitive dissonance. You know, where people who are self-proclaimed Christians and how good they are and everything else, but then they completely ignore, you know, a story like the Good Samaritan or or they're totally entrenched in uh, political divisiveness or just constantly othering othering people. And if you're not on their team, you're the enemy, that sort of thing. Um, So they're Christian in name, but they kind of ignore all the stories and all of that. Does that come up in in Buddhism as well, where there are people who... um, I guess indulge in this practice nominally and you know I'm a Buddhist I'm a Buddhist but then when when push comes to shove they're just not you know not so friendly with other people yeah they don't live it yeah well unfortunately we've had a couple of examples with um, people who were supposedly uh, sanctioned teachers Mm, uh, and who ended up and these were some of them were Japanese some of them were American some of them were Tibetan Buddhist um, and they were abusing their students, claiming mm-hmm. and and claiming that that they were teaching them, which is just ridiculous. It meant that they were not really deeply awakened themselves. They were not. Mm-hmm. They didn't do the long maturation work, which is essential. They might have been able to pass all the cons, but that doesn't make you a master. Mm-hmm. Uh, your your humanity must be revealed in the process. Yeah. For that to be true. How does someone, because I'm, I'm thinking a lot of people who do seek out Zen and Zen teachers, um, a lot of it is vulnerable people. You know, yes. as we started this conversation with, it's a lot of people who feel like they don't know where else to turn. You know, they feel like they, their back is against a wall and they need to do something. And, and Zen becomes the thing. It becomes a beacon of light. Um, so it's vulnerable people. And it sounds like there, unfortunately, are some teachers there who do do see that and then and then take advantage of that how do how do um how would someone who's looking for a zen teacher or looking for some kind of spiritual practice know if they're being um pulled in by you know that sort of teacher an abusive teacher or if it's someone genuine how, how can you tell the difference sometimes it's, it's hard for the person who has that kind of history to discern because they've yeah. been taught for example if you've been um you know constantly sexually abused by your father and and uh, he's come up with all kinds of reasons why it's it's okay to do that then you your 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 sense of uh, what's proper and ethical gets kind of torqued mm-hmm. and so you're vulnerable to somebody like that particularly since you're wanting to have the kind of approval that you didn't really get from your father Mm-hmm. And and so, such people are, are vulnerable. But then there are other people, who encounter those teachers and are and are, um, have experienced that abuse and and have questions about it, and unfortunately, often the sanghas, and these two, two um, sanghas that I can I can well three of them really that I, know a little bit more about. Um, support the teacher and say mm-hmm. oh no he's just trying to teach you which is bullshit yeah you don't teach through abuse yeah it's just it's it's inappropriate it's unethical 
-hmm. And anybody who has got, done that long maturation will recognize that. Right. But when I was asking uh, Haridoshi, my, my last Zen teacher, about, I wasn't asking him, I was in a kitchen where someone else was asking him how somebody who was a sanctioned Zen teacher could abuse their students. And Haridoshi said they, they didn't stay long enough in the monastery which means their training was insufficient. They didn't, they didn't stick it out to do the, the hard work. Mm. Yeah. So uh, sometimes there are cultures where, um, or circumstances where uh, a teacher uh, finds it uh, expedient to create a sub-teacher, and you know, a teacher who is their successor uh, for example, in the case that they're dying, and so they just want the lineage to pass on, and so they, mm -hmm. they t and this has happened at least two situations I know of in the United States, where the teacher was dying, and so they um, gave transmission, supposedly, to all their senior students, and the senior students at least assumed that made them teachers, and it might or might not have, it's unclear because nobody asked the guy or the girl that mm -hmm. uh, one was a female and one was a male. And in the case of um, one of them, the, because I knew the, one of these people that supposedly was sanctioned to teach by that person, and he was, he was being quite ethical and he was not really that interested in teaching. Mm -hmm. So it didn't come to much and he, he never abused anybody. Yeah. Um, the other ones uh, have become teachers, or I assume they were teachers and sort of set up shop as teachers, uh, and they're just teaching a uh, a um, not as deep form of, of Zen practice mm -hmm. because that's not what they got. You right. Can only teach what you what you've got. Yeah. 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 One well, another thing that comes to mind is. Um, I, I was listening to a uh, a priest talk once, mm -hmm. um, and he um, it was actually Richard Rohr who lives in lives in Albuquerque. Oh yeah, a Catholic priest. Yeah, 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 and he he does great stuff. He he pretty much does Catholicism from a non dualistic perspective, and then he reads a lot of Zen literature and does have a, a contemplative meditation practice and all of that. So I, I really enjoy his stuff, and he was saying how especially as a priest where people are call him father, he goes a lot of people who are looking to learn from him end up projecting these these parent roles onto him and he goes that gets really messy in spiritual practice where the teacher um gets kind of like parentified by by the by the students you know and i know again a lot of these students are coming from backgrounds of abandonment you know mm -hmm. and maybe have an unfulfilled need for for a parent figure you know mm -hmm. to guide them is that something that um you've come across in, in your experience as a teacher and something that you've had to learn how to work with with your students. Yeah, and I watched Rishi Kaflo work with it too. Mm. Uh, in fact, at a time when I was vulnerable, um, I, I, at the, I was actually his attendant at the time and, and I was feeling abandoned, not by him, but a totally unrelated situation and and so I went into town and there was a sale going on in in winter clothing 
and so I bought a bunch of, of long, uh, long underwear, mainly tops. I think it was all tops. Uh, for because I knew he always had a problem with cold, uh, which I can relate to. He never got warm after he left Japan. Uh, at, you know, he was in Japan for thirteen years, and and it's it, pretty pretty cold a lot of the time in Japan, especially mm -hmm. where he was, and and so he he was known to be very cold all the time. So I thought, okay, I'll just bring him these, and he saw right through it. And I said, no, uh -huh. these are for you. Yeah. So he didn't accept them. Mm -hmm. And that, that was exceedingly wise. Yeah. Hari Roshi is also the same. He, he will not accept anything other than, you know, um, a, 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 some coffee or, or uh, stuff like that yeah. from, from somebody, from one of his students. Yeah, yeah. That's so interesting. That, that's been kind of like a... Uh... A little bit of like a head trip for me in, in Zen practices, realizing it's you could you could be really nice, you could be the freaking nicest person in the world, but you're still doing that from a place of conditioning, from a place of stuff, and there's a there's a inauthenticity there. Yeah. And then it's not that being it's not that that makes being nice bad or something like that. It just makes it inauthentic, and then there's not clarity there, and you're not you're not seeing yourself as as deeply and truly as you could be. Yeah, and that's, again, that's why that long maturation is so important because um, you've got to see where you are caught. You've got to see where you're hooked into behavior patterns that are not necessarily uh, optimal, not necessarily kindest mm -hmm. or generous, most generous or most supportive. And, and as you see those things, you begin to um, feel kind of regretful. Yeah. And then you have a choice. You can either work with them and really accept the responsibility for having behaved that way, which usually generates a, a deep commitment to not doing it again. Mm -hmm. uh, or you can override it, do what John Wellwood um, discovered people were doing 30 years ago in Zen practice, with Zen practices, either doing an end run around your issues or... Mm. Um, you know, other I had other terms for that. Yeah. And that's that's why um, some of these people could do the things that they were doing as Zen teachers, and it was because they they had done their practice in that way, ignoring all the warning signs of where they were caught in in inappropriate behaviors. Yeah. Is there like a rationalization process? I mean, I guess you'd have to be in the person's head to know, but yeah. you know, if there's like a rationalization process where it's like, no, I'm, I'm, I am teaching this person. I'm actually helping them by doing whatever abusive behavior. I think that part comes later. Yeah. I think they give in to their desires and then they have to rationalize it. Right. I don't, I don't think they do it because they're thinking it's going to help. Mm. Or, or right. you know, come up with that excuse. I think it's more like they have to have some public excuse yeah, yeah. that that would um, put the guilt on the other person. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hmm. I was wondering too, it seems to me that so much of Zen is about just authenticity, just being your authentic self and, and essentially removing the layers that keep you from doing so. Mm -hmm. um, and a question that a friend asked me once is, uh, 
Is Zen anti-ambition? No. Well, that's a... What we assume is ambition... It, it would be not anti that, but it would raise an eyebrow rod. For example, if you mm. um, start to work for a corporation with the idea that you're going to climb the ladder, um, maybe on people's backs, and become president one day, then that's... Zen is about living in the moment, and because the moment is all we have. Mm-hmm. We don't have a... The future is a dream. The past is a dream, it's always past. And all we have is the present moment in which to behave. And we behave in either freer ways, responding to circumstances, or we behave caught in our own conditioning and and reactivity. Mm -hmm. And so the, the more we can let go of the reactivity, we can't just let it go, that's not possible. You have to see where you're caught, mm-hmm. see where you're being reactive, yeah. and and have that deep regret and, and a commitment not to be that way for yourself to change that. Mm-hmm. So um, being ambitious is, is not part of the picture. If we're living in the moment, we're not thinking of the future, which is what ambitious, ambition is about. Oh, interesting, yeah. But, okay. you know, that doesn't mean that um, we have uh, sort of an inclination. We're interested in medicine. Uh, we love taking biology and, and medical classes, and and it's a natural progression to go and become a doctor or some scientific person related to that. And that's that would be normal. Mm-hmm. That's not that's not ambitious necessarily. Um, it's I think. I suspect that what your friend meant is, are you just going to hang out and be, or are you going to actually do something? Kind of, yeah. I think I think um, I'd have to ask him, but I think it was also the question was coming from a uh, kind of like a preconceived notion of um, Buddhism, which I think a lot of people have actually of this like navel gazing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Navel gazing, kind of hippie thing. You're just hanging out. <laughs> you know, yeah. life is just airy fairy, that sort of thing. Yeah, no, and it's not because but um people may come in with that idea, but if mm. they really do the work and really engage in the long maturation, they will uncover um natural ways that are fulfilling for them to live. Mm-hmm. Being an artist, for example, yeah. or uh, being a writer or being a parent, or being a street sweeper, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, there are people who, who choose to do menial work because it's meaningful for them to do that so that um, other people don't have to do it or whatever, but it's, it, you know, there's, there's a karmic inclination to be drawn to a particular kind of livelihood mm-hmm. for people. Yeah. And usually in the West, and this is the case in Europe as well, that, that um, society has a hierarchical view of this, you know, doctors, lawyers, um, scientists might be at the top of the totem pole, mm-hmm. and somebody who cooks for McDonald's, the bottom. Yeah. Uh, but 
it's sad that people get caught in these hierarchical views and end up uh, denying what they are naturally inclined towards. In the interest of being successful in society. Mm-hmm. <coughs> and it usually ends up with them in their 30s or 40s suddenly realizing they're not very satisfied with life. Yeah. And something's missing. Yeah, yeah. And there's something like almost comical too about the uh, how much we invest in these in these stories. I mean, in in moments in moments of my own kind of like when I'm feeling open, you know, during during meditation and I have these moments of it feels like I kind of puncture through my own story my own conditioning whatever and can see a little bit more clearly it's like humorous it's like wow look at all that man i put so much effort there <coughs> yeah yeah for what you know for yeah. for 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 a false image for a joke you know yeah but society yeah. encourages that unfortunately yeah there's a it's almost like there's a a path that people are expected to walk in society to be successful in society. And if you don't walk that path, if you're not successful, then something's wrong. You're not good enough, um, you're too stupid, or you're not worthy. Mm -hmm. I mean, all all kinds of uh, condemnation can come forth. Yeah. But if somebody follows their dream and then in the end becomes highly successful, in the ideas of society, but actually being fulfilled in the work that they were drawn to, mm-hmm. uh, then they're recognized as somebody who's worthy in society. But it, you know they have to do the work first in order to be accepted. Mm-hmm. In the meantime, the rest of us um, we have a choice between um, doing what society says will be fulfilling to us and worthy of us and make us happy and and successful or we can follow our dream and might not get that societal approval mm-hmm. but we'll be more fulfilled unless we're too caught in the idea of having to fit into society yeah and that idea of having to fit into society is very strong and very powerful yeah what's the relationship of a deep zen practice to money because I think, you know, even as I was speaking, saying like, haha, look at the social game. I don't, you know, it's a joke, blah, blah. Sure, that's great. But then, you know, of course, for tons of people, you know, I guess everyone, we live in an economic system. There's the question of like, okay, it's all a game. You know, it's it's all a dream, all that, all that sort of language. Um, but then... I got to eat. I got to eat within this dream. So yeah, what's, yeah. what's the approach? No, the approach is, is um, to tune in and to get a sense of what uh, is appropriate in your situation. Mm -hmm. For example, there are people who are quite wealthy, extremely wealthy, and are using that wealth to support research, to support um, programs that would help people, Mm -hmm. to uh, support research into into, um, finding ways to heal illnesses that are traumatic uh, and devastating. Uh, and and so, in that sense, you know, money itself is not is not the issue. Mm. It's what you're doing with it and how attached you are to it. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Because I guess you can like, 
you can have someone who's approaching the game of money from like deep, deep attachment and fear and stress and conditioning and all that sort of stuff. And then someone who's like, yeah, I get a paycheck because I need it. And that's, that's fine, but I'm not, it's whatever. It's not something that I'm preoccupied on. Yeah. And, and they happen to get a paycheck and, and the karma to rise in a corporation and right. end up with lots and lots and lots of money. Mm-hmm. And, and, but, um, it's interesting that the people who have lots of money and are attached to it um, don't like to get rid of it. Yeah. They fear losing it. And, and it's a well-known fact that people who have um, little money give a higher proportion of their income to charity than people who have lots. Mm. Yeah. And then there's all the people and politically that are trying to change the laws for income tax so they have a lot of loopholes so they can keep their millions. Yeah. Um, so it depends on your motivation and your your reason for having money and mm-hmm. your attachment to it. Because right. having money can be quite beneficial. Mm-hmm. Um, you can use it for all kinds of ways of helping in, in deep ways. Yeah. Um, Funding projects that make a difference, positive difference in people's lives, like the ones that are um, researching um, water sources and coming up with these inexpensive little little um, mechanisms that can provide clean water for people who can't get water at all. Mm-hmm. Things like that. I mean, you can do that with your money. Right. Um, so again, it just boils down to what's behind that. Yeah. It's not the money itself. It's whether how attached you are to it and, and well, that's basically the bottom line. How, how attached are you to it? Yeah. How do we, how do we define karma? That's, that's a word that, oh. yeah, it's a big one. And it comes up. It comes up a lot and I even find myself saying, and I feel like I have an understanding of it, but then also just to check myself, I'm like, well, what is karma, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, karma basically is just cause and effect. Yeah. When something is done, there's a result from that. Mm-hmm. And uh, then it boils down to, you know, a person's behavior. Uh, and people get mixed up and they think that uh, something... Uh, difficult or bad is happening to somebody and they say oh it's your karma you must have done you must have been a bad person or um, something like that but it's not about good or bad it's about um, doing things and there's results yeah and there's positive results and negative results and neutral results and karma is constantly being um, altered Mm-hmm. by current behavior yeah and uh, and it can make it makes a big difference you know you can go also there's you know this so-called wheel of life and death where there are theoretically six categories in Buddhism mm-hmm. uh, going from hungry ghosts to fighting demons and and so on and all the way up to to the heavenly realms and these are not necessarily places you're going to get born. We're, we're going up and down through these realms all the time when we have um, painful emotions or generous feelings or whatever. Uh, but um, you can be in a hell realm 
not because you're in hell for things you've done, but I think about this, this story. I have a friend who was um, diagnosed with a very, very, very virulent, virulent um, dose, uh, case of, of um, leukemia. And he was told that if he hadn't come into the ER at that time, he only went in because his hands and feet were swollen. And he was ready to leave when some people came in that were badly injured in an accident because he didn't want to take attention away mm -hmm. from them. And his wife said, no, they took your blood. We, we really, you know, it's decent to stay and at least find the results. They told him if he had not stayed, he would have been dead in two days mm -hmm. because he had such a um, fast-acting uh, killer of blood cancer. And so they had to actually heal him enough that they could give him chemo to try to wipe out the cancer. He was in the hospital for seven months. And during that time, there were three times when his family was called in to say goodbye to him. The third time, he actually told me about himself and he found that he was in a hell realm. Hmm. And he was suffering like, like everybody else in the hell realm. And then he, he noticed uh, an old man um, who with kindly eyes and he was wondering why a person like that was in hell and the man came over and led him through a um, some kind of invisible curtain into a land that was filled with peace and which people and animals were listening to a talk and laid him down against a, a lion that was lying down mm. and when he did survive, and he went with his Zen teacher, it was not me, but a Dharma sister of mine, who took her Sangha to Japan, and one of the temples they went to is called Sanju Sangendo, which name actually reflects the size of the, the building, because it's a very long building, and it was used for, um, for uh, archery competitions. <laughs> There are still arrows stuck in the walls oh, cool. uh, on this back pathway, uh, back uh, hallway. And in the front hallway, it's a long, long hallway. It's called the Hall of 10,000 Kanons. Kanon, of course, is the, the Bodhisattva of compassion. That is the emanation of compassion, the image of compassion that is innate in all people. And it's, it's beautiful. These are all individuals standing Kanons or Kuan Yin, as it's known as in China, um, and it's the expression of benevolence and generosity and compassion, unconditional compassion. So there are all these figures standing up, and then in front of the figures is um, are three-quarter life-size figures of various different things: the the um, pre-Buddhist gods. Uh, there's one guy who looks like he's got a big sausage around his shoulders. <laughs> yeah. I finally realized he's the god of the wind. Another one with drums up and over his head, the god of thunder, and so on. Those are the two I remember, but there's a whole slew of them. And then also, in midst of those, is this little old guy with a wispy beard, and he's holding a scroll, and he's dressed in animal skins from his waist down, 
And when Jim saw that guy, he said, that's the guy that led me out of hell. Oh, weird. And the guy is called Senin, uh, no, Basu Senin. Senin means a mountain hermit. Yeah. And he had taken a vow, apparently, to enter the hells for lifetime after lifetime until he was able to lead everybody out of hell. Mm. Wow. So um, that's an expression of karma, too. Yeah. But everything is an expression of karma. Yeah. Because one way that helps me uh, think of karma is um, actually in terms of like a skill or a craft. It's like cause and effect. Like I put in this much practice and now I'm reaping the benefits of that. Yeah. Or gardening or something. Mm -hmm. You know, I put in the time and the effort of planting the seeds and watering them. And now I'm getting the literal or or metaphorical fruits of those seeds. Yeah. Whether those are positive seeds, negative seeds, neutral seeds. That's, you get them what you put out kind of. Yeah. And that's the same way with behavior. Yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, that is behavior to plant your seeds, but it's also... Interactive behavior with other people, mm-hmm. and um, there are some people that remember past lives in enough detail that they can trace down the the karma. Yeah, um, and it's quite enlightening. So that would be kind of like so. So there's karma that you know you that you're aware of. You know, maybe something that happened this morning or that you mm-hmm. did and then you're reaping the benefits of it later in the afternoon. And then is there also like past life karma, not necessarily aware of it, but the cause and effect is yeah. still kind of carrying through. Oh, yeah. And it's like I say, it's kind of like a uh, guided missile. Mm. So each new behavior alters the set of effects from long, long ago. Yeah. Uh, timelessly long ago mm-hmm. and and so you can change your karma yeah. uh, at least to a certain degree I mean yeah. some karma is called fixed karma although it's not so fixed anymore because of the ability to change sex yeah uh, but um, and there's also mm-hmm. communal karma if you're part of a group you may as in the Jewish folks in in Europe um, you happen to be born uh, a, a Jew in Europe at a certain time and when Hitler was, was trying to extinguish all Jews so that's, that's kind of communal karma mm-hmm. and whether you're escaped or not is, is karma and I think about this in terms of the World Trade Center mm-hmm. uh, on the day that those airplanes flew into those buildings there were a number of people, significant number of people, who had not gotten to the office that day for whatever reason. They were sick. One guy had to take his kid to to preschool, um, and somebody else had already done it mm-hmm. before. And another person was late getting on one of the trains, and so it was not one of the trains that was under the building. Then. Right. And lots of things. The same way with the airplanes. Mm-hmm. The one that crashed and field in Pennsylvania I believe that was the one had only 23 people on it and it was a jumbo jet yeah which would have had 200 and some people on it yeah but it didn't so and there were people who you know for very reason various reasons did not get on that airplane yeah and and that's karmic mm-hmm. you know 
some sense kept him from, or some some occurrence kept him from getting on it. Yeah. So you could say it wasn't their time to die or something like that, but um, it came out of some previous action, whether it was having to take your kid to preschool or, you know, waking up too late to get the train you normally were on or having some other business. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's, it all depends yeah. on things like that. And I think about as far as one of those planes that crashed, my older son had a fellow um, stage co-worker um, killed in one of those crashes because he went home early to be at the birth of his second kid. And so he left the job early in order to be there mm-hmm. and ended up on one of those planes. Yeah. So, you know, you can't really ascribe motive to it particularly. Mm-hmm. And that's the thing that people get caught up in. Um, and, you know, he just felt compelled to get back to L.A. before his wife gave birth again. Mm-hmm. And the group he was working with, I think it was actually a Stones tour, a Rolling Stones tour. They, you know, they said, yeah, I mean, you can, you can leave early. It's fine. Mm-hmm. And then, then he died. Yeah. Um, so, and then there are the you know the policemen and the firemen that rushed into those buildings and ended up being crushed with them. Mm-hmm. They were in there for positive reasons, but um, because they were a policeman or a fireman in New York City at that time, that was what happened. Yeah. So we also kind of adopt the karma of a uh, group or organization that we that we get involved with, right? So yeah. yeah, cops, firefighters, whatever. If I chose to go become a New York City police officer or something, I'm also then absorbing and probably, I guess, carrying out the karma of that organization, its history, whatever. Yeah. Same yeah. thing with nations. Yeah. All of these things. Yeah. Yeah. And how some people, you know, didn't qualify for the draft for Vietnam. Mm, and yeah. other people did. Um, why some of them were sent over. I think about you know my brother who was singled out to go to um, uh, Walter Reed Hospital to perform his medical surgeries there mm-hmm. instead of being sent to a field hospital in Vietnam, and yeah. he survived because of that. Right. Um, you know you don't want to try to go back too far in somebody's strand of history to try to nail whatever it was that yeah. was good or bad because it's always being altered by uh, current behavior and 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 so you don't know yeah and one thing that comes to mind is um so sometimes it is just kind of random you know things are just happening to you whether or not you know the the karma and the causes and one thing i had difficulty with when I was moving out of Albuquerque, you know, I'd witnessed a bunch of violence there and was upset. And one thing that I had to work with was this feeling and story behind it that, well, I, I was doing all the right things. I'm not a bad person. Why did I come in contact with these difficult experiences? Because you chose that job. Yeah, yeah. I think it was the karma of the city, the karma of the location I was working in. So, I mean, I was Well, it was, it was your karma to, yeah. to choose to work in that location. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, the city karma, 
Yeah, that's a generalized thing, but mm. uh, sort of like the New York City karma and, and how many people were in those towers mm -hmm. that day. Uh, yeah. But it was your karma to go there and teach. Mm -hmm. You didn't have to live in Albuquerque. You didn't have to take that job, right. presumably. Yeah. Uh, so um, you were drawn to take that job for, do you know why? <clears throat> do I know why? Yeah, I mean, do you have a sense of why? You needed a job or... Oh, yeah, there's... Yeah. You like teaching? Yeah, there's levels to it. There's just like, well, oh, man, there's so many levels. There's just yeah. like, well, I needed a job was one. Two, as I come from a family of civil servants, you know, cops, nurses, people like that, teachers. So I think it was just sort of in my purview, like, okay, that's a stable, you know, job with, a, you know, the state, good paycheck, whatever all that sort of stuff. And I think there was also emotional, psychological things because it, it was a space with a lot of people who were suffering, a lot of young people who were suffering. And then you were, you earlier in this conversation, you were talking about uh, your stuff, whatever, your, whatever you want to call it, your stuff is kind of like, I'm going to use the word frequency, kind of happening at a certain frequency that then attaches to maybe other people at that same frequency. Something yeah, it, like that. It, it connects. I mean, I wouldn't say yeah. attaches to, but okay. there's yeah. a resonance. Yeah, there's a resonance. So I think that resonance was there that I felt very uh, um, attuned to. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so that's all part of, part of karma. Yeah, yeah. And that resonance probably came from a long time ago as mm -hmm. you were growing up and and because your father was a policeman and mm -hmm. and your brothers became policemen and and so it was sort of in the air to become a policeman <laughs> or something <laughs> something similar yeah and yeah. so it, in a certain way it was drawn to you were drawn to teach in a violent school yeah uh with kids who were there because they were uh, they've been in trouble right yeah oh yeah yeah lots of, lots of trouble with lots of cops yeah yeah so so it was sort of almost like a natural affinity given how you'd grown up. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. God, yeah, that's so interesting. And, and I guess, yeah, just the karma of the people around us too, our families, all of that stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah, their experiences, how it trickles down to us. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And choosing a family. Mm -hmm. Because we do choose. Yeah. And, and uh, we're drawn to choose because of uh, predispositions, desires, uh, conditioning that hasn't been worked through. Mm -hmm. So then as, um, there's no escape from karma then? No. Nope. No matter what, because you're always in some sort of positive, negative, whatever, there's always some sort of cause and effect. Yeah, but when you, uh, this question of, cause, of positive or negative, you can be in what appears to be negative situations, but they turn out positive for you. And I just think about, you know, everything crashing in my life and mm -hmm. how that has turned out to be um, basically the basis of a, an enormous gift. Mm -hmm. And um, how when you were working in the school, you were able to be such that uh, some of the kids really connected deeply with you mm -hmm. and and you had something that that was fulfilling for them nurturing for them and so e even though 
there were traumatic times for you in that school, the, the, your being there wasn't just um, a, a complete negative thing. Mm-hmm. It, it, you had you were there offering positive influence without even realizing it. I'm sure it's just because who you yeah. are, you connected to the pain in these kids and and responded to it, and they responded to you. Mm-hmm. And I dare say you did some good work there. So um, there are times when, for example, I got fired from a job once, mm-hmm. um, and. It turned out to be a gift because it forced me to go out to the, on business to my, for myself in Washington, D.C. Um, and it put me up against my own fears and, and I ended up becoming successful. And I wouldn't have done it if I hadn't gotten fired. Mm-hmm. So getting fired was, was a, a positive thing, even though it was like a shock when yeah. it happened. Particularly since it was shock because the person that fired me, the head of the, the uh, architecture firm, uh, fired me because I was the most expedient one to get rid of, and he had kind of taken on a, a, a much younger uh, relationship, despite the fact that he was married and has eight kids. Mm. And he wanted her close to him, so he, in order to do that, he had to fire me. <laughs> mm. So it was it was a kind of a funny situation. In addition to that, yeah, <laughs> people are people are wild. <laughs> people are wild. Yes, people are wild. Well, that's funny. But I realized a lot of times, um, uh, for example, when I left living in Turkey, I sold the possessions I had, um, and. Uh, the person that was a friend of mine was going to take the money to the black market and change it for dollars. And that particular day, um, there was a rumor that there was going to be a devaluation. Mm. So nobody was willing to change into dollars. So he actually took it and bought himself a house in Turkey. Yeah. I never saw a penny of it. But I have no no regrets at all because I feel like I must, I, I certainly I paid off a karmic debt that way. Mm. Yeah. Well, I think that's that's a good place to stop. We've been going for a while. Yeah. Um, all right, cool. We can just close out. Can you remind people where to get the book? Yeah, at uh, Amazon.com. Again, it's called Deepening Zen, colon, The Long Maturation. And it's by Mitra Bishop, Roshi. And um, you can get it on Amazon.com or through the publisher, Sumero Press. All right. And thank you. Yeah, thanks so much, Roshi. Appreciate it.